2 Kings 19 is a story that is in the Bible three different places. We talked about this this morning. You see this here. You see it in uh, 2 Chronicles, chapters 29 through 32, and you see it in Isaiah, chapter 36 through 39. And there are significant stories in the Bible that are repeated this way so that you understand the truthfulness of the account. Um, it's not just that, like the Red Sea crossing, which is repeated by lots of different authors looking back on it, but uh, this event, and like the events of Jesus' life, are recorded by three different authors, some cases four authors with, with Jesus, that were all contemporaneous with it. They all saw these events, experienced these events. They were um, the, the initial recorders of these events, and they've come to us in these different ways. And that's because by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every truth is established. And what you see in Hezekiah with this story here that we're going to read about tonight, understand that in a book about battles and wars, this particular battle war doesn't stand out to us so much as being different than the others. And yet in the world at this time, the battle that we're going to read about tonight was, was world-changing. The battle that you read about tonight was front page news all over the world at the time. It's, it's described in many secular sources. This was a big deal in the world. And so much of what you read in the Bible was not a big deal in the world. It, you know, it was a big deal to the prophets and it's a big deal to God, of course. And so it is a big deal to us because it comes through the word of God. This is one of those exceptions. It's a big deal to us and it was a big deal in the world. And that's why it's described in so many different ways. The main theme of what we're going to read about tonight is the sovereignty of God over uh, our lives and how prayer intersects with that, how prayer intersects with the sovereignty of God. You know, I've heard people ask the question, some of you may have even asked this question before, if God is sovereign, why pray? I mean, if God's going to do what God's going to do, then why should we bother praying? After all, if he's sovereign, why would we want to waste his time? Why does prayer matter? Why would you spend time praying if God already knows what he's going to do? And before I answer that question, at least appreciate the question. At least understand what's behind it. Is, is, it, is, a, gen, is, is a true, a generally true tension there? That if God has his plan and he's enacting his plan in time and that he's sovereign over events and in his mind is uh, every action and active man from before the foundation of time that God has conceived and decreed and then time is taking place and passing forward, why would you interject or interrupt into God's perfect plan with your own ideas or your own petitions? And if God is sovereign, why pray? And it's one of those questions that I actually like to answer by reversing it. I like, to putting, I like to put a not in that question. Um, if God is not sovereign, why pray? And come at it from that angle. If God is not in control of things, if he's not sovereignly directing the purpose of the world, then why would you pray? What do you hope to accomplish with prayer? And that's a question I, I've never really been able to answer. I used to work for a... a, a a missions organization, and part of our covenant that we signed working for them is that we would spend the first hour every day in our, in our quiet time. That was the official theological word for it. It was our quiet time. And uh, of that quiet time, the first 30 minutes was spent reading the Bible, and the next 30 minutes was spent praying. And of that 30 minutes praying, it was divided, but the majority of that time had to be spent praying evangelistically 
praying for uh, evangelism, for people, people that we would reach out to that day with the gospel. And I loved that season of my life. I loved spending the morning uh, reading the Bible every day and then praying and then acting on it right away, praying and then going out the door to go in a sense, answer my own prayers. I'm praying that people will come to faith through, uh, through my ministry, and now I'm going go, to go do it. I'm going to go tell them the gospel and, and see them come to faith in Christ. And I remember reading a book by Jonathan Edwards, of course, that uh, basically raised this question in my mind. If God's not sovereign over salvation, why are you praying that he would save people? And that rocked my tiny little world, that question. Because I was thinking of all the hours I had spent praying that people would come to faith. And yeah, if you would ask me at the time, is God sovereign over people's salvation? I would have said no. They're not sovereign. I would have said God nudges people towards salvation. God wants people to come to faith in Christ. And the devil nudges back or the world nudges back. And there's this little bit of a tug of war. And it falls to the person to make the final choice. That God would never uh, save somebody against his will. And the devil wants to use his will to keep everybody from salvation. So it falls to that individual to make the choice. That's kind of the, what I believed at that time. But then the question, if that is true, what am I praying for? When I'm praying for God to save people, what am I actually praying for? What do I expect God to do? And I guess uh, my answer would have been maybe use circumstances to uh, you know, pull a little harder than the devil. <laughs> Maybe use circumstances to you know, give the final yank that, uh, on the guy's heart, but it's still his, his choice. Or maybe just bring me to the people that, that God knows would, would choose him, I guess, is what I said. And those answers just are not adequate for lots of reasons, but most of all because they don't match what you see in the Bible. And so, in my own mind, I went back to the Scripture and, and reading the Bible, and I became convinced of the sovereignty of God, not just over salvation, but over all, all things. And this is where prayer becomes filled out now because now you're praying to the one who is directing things you're praying to the one who is directing the affairs of the universe well if that's true and it is why pray i mean isn't god's plan better than yours and the answer is yes god's plan is better than your plan praise the lord and to quote a country song thank god for unanswered prayers <laughs> sometimes country country has some good theology in it God does have a plan that is better than your plan. And that's why God does not answer all of your prayers because his plan is better than your plan. But why bother praying at all if God's going to do what God is going to do? And the answer involves what happens in our own heart. The answer involves the way God is glorified, of course, and then what happens in our own heart. When you see answered prayer, when your heart becomes aligned with the Lord's will and you see answered prayer, then you see him at work and you appreciate what he's doing. And God doesn't just, he's not just sovereign over the ends of everything, he's also sovereign over the means. And one of the means he uses to bring about his end is prayer. And that's because he's glorified through that. He's glorified through that. And you know, the best example in the Bible, I talk about this often, is in Esther chapter 4, with, with Mordecai and, and Esther, where the sovereignty of God is clear in this. God is going to save the Jews. Mordecai doesn't know how. Esther doesn't know how. But they know that God is going to save the Jews. And so Mordecai tells Esther, look, this is the best plan I've got. You go and you talk to the king and you get it done, Esther. Go. 
And she says, no. And Mordecai's response is not, well, that's the only hope. Mordecai's response is then relief and deliverance will come from another place. Not like as if there's plan B. It's just that if this isn't the right, if this isn't God's plan, then I don't know what is, but he certainly has one. But you, Esther, you and your father's household will most certainly perish. But Esther, if you do act, as the implication here, then God will use you. You can participate in what God is doing. And of course, Esther acts and the Jews are saved and God is glorified through Esther. And so the question that Mordecai asks her is kind of a question that hangs in the air for us. I mean, do you want to pray? Do you want to be the tool that God uses to advance what he's doing in the world? He's going to advance it regardless, but do you want to participate? Do you want the blessing from being part of this? Do you want to pray for things to happen and then see them happen? So that you're made aware of God's glory. You're made aware of his sovereignty. You're made aware of his power. And understand that when you're praying for things, you are acting at that moment in part of God's plan. It's not as if God's plan is here and your prayers are over here and you're trying to influence from, out, influence from outside. No, when you're praying, you're bringing your life in line with the will of, of God. And so now what you're seeing, your prayers become part of God's plan. And you're delighting in it. You're growing in it. It's the old Puritan analogy that prayer is, is, you know, the person in the rowboat who's not moving the shore closer to the boat. He's moving the boat closer to the shore. (laughs) Your prayer is not dragging God's will into you. It's dragging you into God's will. And that's what we see tonight in 2 Kings 19. And as you begin here at the beginning, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, and the it here is from 2 Kings 18, which is that incredible story where they're uh, about to be besieged by the Assyrians, Jerusalem is. Hezekiah is a godly king. We've already established that, perhaps the godliest king in Israel's history other than, than David, and, and bad things are about to, to come to his door. And he, the, the generals from the Assyrians and the, the leaders of the Assyrian military, the field commander, if you have different translations, they render them different ways. I'm using the ESV, which just uses their, you know, their Assyrian titles as he are described, but the field commanders come up to the, the wall and they start yelling at the Israelites and they say, you're going down, your God can't save you, your God's, uh, none of the nation's gods can save them. The Assyrians rule whoever they want to rule. If you look back up in chapter 18, verse 34, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvim, Hanah, and Evah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hands? And we know that that's kind of a, a funny note right there that the uh, Assyrian general thinks the gods of the Sumerians were these pagan gods. That lets you know how far Samaria had fallen. It didn't even occur to him that Samaria and, and Jerusalem would be worshiping the same god, Yahweh. Who among all the gods of the lands have been delivered? Why do you think Jerusalem would be delivered? He asked in verse 35. But the people were silent, verse 36. Answered him not a word because the king said, don't talk back to him, don't answer him. I mean, this is a moment of desperation. The Assyrians had conquered the whole known world. This is before the, the Greek Empire. This is the largest empire in the world at the time. They were ruling everyone. They were unstoppable. They were going to defeat the Egyptians. And now, they're at Jerusalem's door. And this is what Hezekiah hears. Now, I'm going to give you this pattern that we're going to follow tonight if you want to go to the the next slide but the the pattern here is problems which lead to prayers 
which lead to promise and which lead to providence. And you watch this cycle unfold. The cycle is going to repeat itself. We're going to see it play out twice in this chapter. The same cycle will go through two times. And so we'll spend more time looking at the first time. And the second time we'll look in more detail at Hezekiah's prayer. But I want you to see the global picture here. Because what you, is described in 2 Kings 19 is not unique to 2 Kings 19. It's this pattern that God typically works in throughout the Bible. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the church age, right here, right now. You see the same pattern played out. The problems present themselves. This is a fallen world, so there's no shortage of problems. Amen? <laughs> so the problems are there. You recognize the problems. You see them. You respond with prayer. God, in a sense, responds to your prayer with his promises. Those promises, then, are in effect, in action in the world, and then providence continues the affairs of the world along their course. Sometimes it seems like your prayers don't change anything, as is the case tonight in 2 Kings 19 initially. So the problem comes. Hezekiah, the nation is surrounded the army, and by the way, the army right now, the Assyrians, is not in Jerusalem, just their generals are. Jerusalem is hidden in the hills. The Assyrian military is out at Lachish, which is, you know, out in kind of the Judean wilderness, but they're on their way, certainly. And the reason they're threatening Jerusalem is basically the Assyrian commander is saying, don't make me come up there, you know. This is the dad who's driving the car, looks in the back seat and says, hey, don't make me pull this car over. I will pull this car over, but I would prefer not to, <laughs> Or the, the parent who shouts upstairs or downstairs, however your house is laid out. I, I know good parents don't shout, but there might be some occasions, you know, where, quiet, do not make me come up there. I don't want to. I will if you make me, but I don't want to. That's what this Assyrian general is doing right now. He's saying to, to Hezekiah, hey, don't make me bring my army all the way to Jerusalem. It's a pain to navigate the mountains. It's like a day out of the way in both directions. Remember the two highways, one goes through Jericho and one goes through, uh, Tel Aviv wasn't there, but along the Mediterranean coast at the time, Joppa. And that's where the two highways are. Jerusalem's in the middle of that. And so he says, look, I just don't want to go out of the way. Just forfeit, just yield, retire Jerusalem, throw up the Assyrian flag, and we'll call it a day. Nobody dies. Assyrian's not that hard of a language to learn. You can do just fine. That's the problem. So Hezekiah hears it. He tears his clothes, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he goes into Yahweh's house. This is the temple. Now, you should pause here and just note how remarkable this is. This is not the way the kings in the Old Testament have generally responded to trouble. The Israelite kings don't generally respond by going and seeking the face of the Lord in the temple. Generally, if you see an Old Testament Judah king going into the temple, it is to plunder, to take the gold and silver out to buy off the opposing army. In fact, that's what Hezekiah had done earlier, which is why there's no gold or silver left. <laughs> he already tried bribing his way out of this. It did not work. We saw that early on in chapter 18. But this time he's going back to seek the Lord. And he sent to Eliakim, who was over the household, and to Shebna the secretary and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth. That's their sign of mourning and despair. It's their, their method of demonstrating their contrition to God. To the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Now this is an unusual verse right here. The king summons the prophet. That's not, again, normally what happens. Not even when David. David didn't summon the prophet. The prophet came to him to confront him. 
When you see prophets and kings in conversation in the Old Testament, it's almost always initiated by the prophet who's coming with a word from the Lord. Very seldom would the king humble himself and call for a prophet. But that's what Hezekiah does. And this is what makes him so remarkable, is he takes the initiative here. And what an encouraging testimony this is, that it is not too late because he didn't do this in chapter 18. He tried buying his way out then. But God has not turned his back on Hezekiah. He chose poorly then. But now Hezekiah appears to have learned his lesson because now he seeks for the Lord. This is exactly what God had told Ahab through the prophet Elijah. Ahab rejected the Lord over and over and over again. And Elijah came to him and said, why don't you call on God? It's not as if you've rejected him so many times that he's not going to hear you. And remember, Ahab does. He does repent, and the Lord hears Ahab, and that blows Elijah away. In fact, in in 1 Kings 21, it appears that it it blew God away. Remember, God tells Elijah, get a load of this. Ahab's repenting. Can you believe that? (laughs) I've seen a lot of crazy things in the six days that created the world, but Ahab repenting. Hezekiah knows that lesson, and he seeks out Isaiah. Isaiah's pager buzzes the king that's surprising (laughs) they say to him thus says hezekiah so the the priests and the secretary they go find isaiah and they deliver the message thus says hezekiah this is a day of distress of rebuke and of disgrace children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth it may be that yahweh your god heard all the words of the reshekah the the general the leader whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. And he rebuked the words that Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So that's Hezekiah's message to Isaiah. You have to pray. And just marvel at the, the, how well-crafted this message is. He starts with the theological problem. Notice that in Hezekiah's mind, the main issue is not that Jerusalem is going to fall, The main issue is not that his kingdom is going to come to an end. The main issue is that Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, is being mocked. And that can't be. That cannot be allowed to stand. And notice that Hezekiah links all of this to the sovereignty of God. He says, you tell God it must be that God has heard this. God has heard this. He must have heard this. In other words, Hezekiah does not act as if he's bringing God new news. He acts in full knowledge that God knows. So what's the point of praying? Well, it's to demonstrate to God that you know that he knows. (laughs) You follow that? Of course God knows. But do you know that he knows? The other kings of Israel have not acted that way. The other kings of Judah haven't acted that way. They didn't act like they knew that God knew. But Hezekiah wants to demonstrate, Lord, this, all of this, my concern for the glory of your name, it is rooted in the fact that I know that you know. I love that he starts with the theology of the thing. It reminds me of David, where David rolls up on the battlefield with Goliath, and everybody is you know, freaking out that Israel's going to lose their battle, and David's not concerned about losing the battle. Do you remember? That's not what his concern was. His concern was, hey, this guy is mocking Yahweh. That can't be allowed to stand. Don't you, do you hear him? Somebody's got to shut this down. That was the, that's Hezekiah's attitude here. That God is being mocked. Sent him to mock the living God. And the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid. 
because the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me, behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will make him fall by the sword in his own lands. That's an interesting prophecy, isn't it? There's two different parts to it. Well, really three parts. One, don't worry about the battle. He's going he's gonna to bounce before the battle happens. You don't need to worry about that. God says, I'll take care of it. Two, he's going to die, but it won't be in Israel. It'll be in his own, his own country, his own land. That's a significant prophecy. It's a significant prophecy because it is God's way of protecting Israel. Because what happens if he dies in Israel? Well, the Assyrian army, which is massive. I mean, the Assyrian army could be, you know, it could have a million soldiers at this point in history. And if they're main officer falls in a battle in Jerusalem, you can guess where the other 900,000 soldiers are going to head. And so that can't be. Perhaps you know this story, but uh, Sam Irwin, who is the congressman, chairman of the uh, Watergate Committee, <laughs> wrote a story about one of the most disturbing events in, in his life was while in the middle of the Watergate hearings, he was the chair of the committee, he went to Cincinnati to be the commencement speaker at the University of Cincinnati. And uh, he gets back from speaking there, and there's two police officers at his hotel room, and they say that there had been death threats called in against him, that people were going to assassinate him. And so the officers were sent there to protect him, and the officers told him, listen, honestly, the chief of police, he doesn't care if you get assassinated. He would probably, politically, he'd prefer that. <laughs> he just doesn't want it to happen in Cincinnati. <laughs> so you can be protected while you're here. It's that kind of promise that God is giving here to Sennacherib, the, the leader of this, this army, and to the, the foes that are raised up against Israel. Hey, God's going to strike you dead. Don't you worry about that. He's just not going to let it happen in Israel. You can return back to your, to your home first. I mean, this is a pretty impressive prophecy, because remember, we're not dealing with like a battle with the Edomites or the Moabites here. We're not dealing with Israel against Judah. We're dealing with the Assyrians, which are ruling the whole world at this point. You know what I mean by that. Not actually the whole world, but the, that whole geographic portion of the world. The, the massive empire. They're the ones that are increasing their authority. Again, a huge army. That's the promise. So notice the cycle here. There was a problem, there was prayer, and now there's a promise from God. And this is the way it often works in our life too. There's a problem that presents itself. You pray about it. And your prayer, you don't get a fresh word from the Lord in the sense of the prophet you know, doesn't come up to you and answer your prayer. Um, although sometimes that kind of thing happens through, through circumstance or, or, or providence. Uh, I remember that there was an event with one of my, I don't see them here tonight so I can feel, have liberty to tell the story. There was an event with one of my daughters where we were praying for her at school. Her, her school wanted to have different kinds of educational approaches and we were just, Dieter and I just weren't comfortable with it and so we were, we were praying and praying and praying. We, and even before we came to evening service, we were praying at our house for, for how the Lord would take care of this. And it was a, in our mind, it was a huge deal. You know, we look back and it's a small thing, but it was a huge deal for us. It was what was dominating our prayer life. We walk into church and a, a woman we had never met before stops us in the hallway and says, hey, I want you to know I'm a tutor in this specific area and I would love to help your family. And we thought, that could have happened anyway, right? She could have come to us anyway. But the fact that we were praying about it before we walked into the hallway of the church and then we had that conversation, you see how God's glory is magnified through that? And that's not a fresh promise from a prophet. It's a fresh answer, though. In your normal prayers, that's often the way that it works. You pray for something and then you get a promise from the Lord through his word. Which again, you could read the promise earlier, but after you pray, the promise has more of an impact, doesn't it? 
You're going through a trial and you go before the Lord about your trial. Lord, help, 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 help. Then you open your Bible to James 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Okay. That's the help right there, Lord. Again, that's not a fresh angel giving you a fresh promise. It's an old promise that's made fresh to your heart because of your prayer. Again, this is the normal way the Lord works. This is how the Lord typically answers prayer. Well, now it's time for providence. It is usually more comfortable to us when the prayer is answered immediately, as in the case of the the tutoring scenario I just described. But again, oftentimes it seems like you pray and you see the promise. And then nothing. It's almost like God didn't hear the prayer, but you know that he did, but nothing's changed. You pulled the fire alarm. There's no sound. (laughs) There's no sirens in the distance. You read the Bible. You see the promises there, and yet nothing has changed. And that's what happens here. The Reb Shekah returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Turkica, the king of Cush, behold, he sent out to fight against you, so he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, now you don't need to keep all these nations straight or these battles straight. Here's the gist of it, is the main Assyrian general goes back to his army, back in Lachish, from threatening Jerusalem, goes back to Lachish, which is again out in the Judean wilderness, and finds that the battle has moved to this other city, because some other random person is attacking there. The whole point is not for you to keep the battle straight in your head, except to know that the Assyrians are being inconvenienced now. They didn't want to go to Jerusalem, because they didn't want to schlep all the way up there, but now they got to go put down this other rebellion over here. I mean, this is just annoying if you're the Assyrian military leaders. And so, this is the message that he sends back in verse 9. He sends back messengers back to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, verse 10, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's ramping up his, his game here, this Assyrian leader. Earlier in chapter 18, he was mocking the Israelites, saying, Don't let your king lie to you. Israelites, don't listen to your king. Your king's lying. He can't save you. Now notice that he's He's ramped this up. Now it's not the king who's lying to you. Now he says, tell the Israelites, don't let your God lie to you. It was all fine and well until you called God a liar. Behold, verse 11, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the, the, gods, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Harnon, Rezpah, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Again, you don't need to know those names. Look at this. Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the shepherd of Im, the king of Hanar, the king of Avah? Does that sound familiar to you? It's the same list we read earlier at the end of chapter 18. In other words, Hezekiah prayed, got an immediate word from Isaiah the prophet, and guess what? Nothing changed. Providence, the world just keeps on going. I mean, that's got to be discouraging, doesn't it? Isaiah, I mean, you've heard of him, right? He's kind of a big deal. (laughs) He gave the message that you'll be fine, and nothing changes. That's providence. And providence often lends itself to producing new problems, doesn't it? The world goes on. Now there's new problems. New problems for new prayers, for new promises, for new providence. And that's the cycle I'm telling you. The cycle goes through the rest of chapter 19. It goes all the way to this very day. But let's follow it not until present day, but through chapter 19, shall we? 
Hezekiah received a letter from the land of the messenger, hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. So Hezekiah got a new letter, new threat, same words. He goes back to the temple, same spot as he went before. And I love this image that he spread it before Yahweh. That's a good example for us. A good example for us that God, I think, is honored by that approach. God doesn't need the letter spread out in good reading light for him to see, right? You understand this. He's, he's not like getting under the skylight in the temple so that, you know, he's not showing it to the angels on the Ark of the Covenant. Hey, can you guys deliver a message for me? No. He understands that God sees it. So what's the point of spreading it out? Same as before. He wants God to know that he knows that God can see it. And it's what you do with missionary cards, right? You get those missionary cards, we put them on a map on our wall or on the magnet in our refrigerator or keep my wall at the desk. And when I pray for them, I might physically put them in front of me. I mean, I want, in a sense, I want the Lord to see me looking at them. It's not that the Lord needs to, the information on both sides of the card, Lord. Make sure you read the, the fine print. And that's not the point. The point is that I want the Lord to know that I'm, I'm bringing this information before him. Again, he knows it, but I want him to know that I know that he knows. And that's what Hezekiah does here. He spreads the letter before Yahweh. What a picture. And Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. What I mean, I love Hezekiah's prayer. This is a model prayer. This is the antidote to the, the silliness of the the Syrian military leader, a few verses earlier, the, he's reading off his resume of all the gods he's defeated. Well, that doesn't impress Hezekiah because Hezekiah is in on their secret. Psst, they weren't real gods. <laughs> Hezekiah knows that. Hezekiah knows they weren't real gods. We used to live, uh, when I was in Los Angeles, we lived off of a, a street, um, Chatsworth, and there was a fire station up at the corner there. And yet we noticed that whenever there was an emergency at the mall that was on the other side of our house, it was never the fire trucks from that fire station that came. They, never, they were never the ones that came. Winneka and Chatsworth, if you're familiar with that area, that was the fire station. But we never saw them driving down Winnetka to the mall right there. And uh, that was a mystery because the other fire station was further away. And I, I noticed those kind of things. Uh, Dieter thought it was weird that I noticed those kind of things. But I noticed... Like fire trucks. So one day I'm riding my bike around and I go and look in the window and wouldn't you know it? There's no fire trucks there. The station is empty. It's maintained by the, the city, but they had moved the fire trucks and it's not staffed. And well, that's a great explanation for why there's no fire trucks leaving there, right? It's like mystery solved right there. This is kind of what's going on in this this story right here. I mean, those other gods were not able to save their nations, but hey. Go look through the windows of those firehouses. Guess what? There's no trucks inside. There's nothing behind those other gods. There's nothing there. And Hezekiah knows that. And he reminds the Lord, hey, you are the real God. And Hezekiah follows the same pattern he did earlier, doesn't he? He starts with God's power. He starts with the theology of the thing. Incline your ear, verse 16. Now is petition time. 
O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Again, in Hezekiah's mind, it's the grief that this is against the Lord more than against Israel. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations in their lands. They have cast their gods in the fire, for they were not gods. But they are the work of men's hands and wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. He understands what he's talking about here. He knows that the problem is, first of all, theological, but second, immediate to them. If they fall, the nations will mock God. And so he tells God how answering his prayer will glorify God. It's not that God needs to know that, but I just want you to appreciate it. It lets, it lets God know, that again, that you know you're thinking through how this glorifies God. And you should try that in your own prayers. Instead of just praying for so-and-so to, to be healed, chase that down a few more steps. Lord, I pray for so-and-so to be healed so that I can see the power of prayer at work, so that the doctors and the nurses that are working with this person can see the power of prayer at work, so that it can be an evangelistic example. I mean, chase down exactly how what you're asking for glorifies God. What you will find is that changes the way you pray big time. It's no longer about me, 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 but it's about you're connecting the me to the, the him. How this glorifies the Lord. And that's how Hezekiah is praying. Hezekiah doesn't want to lose to the Assyrians. Of course not. And so he's letting God know. And notice, so now, oh Yahweh, save us, because you know God. The point is you know. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah. <laughs> now it's Isaiah's turn to go seeking. Hezekiah's pager goes off, prophet's at the door. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. What an amazing divine interjection right here. Isaiah was not in the temple, yet Isaiah gets the message from God that God has heard Hezekiah's prayer. I mean, that is, that's got to be encouraging. Here's what Yahweh has to say. So we've heard from Sennacherib about the Israelites. We've heard from Hezekiah about Sennacherib. What's left is to hear from God. <laughs> And here's God's final answer. This is what Yahweh has spoken concerning Sennacherib. Calm down, everyone. That's a short version, but we'll go through it a verse at a time. <laughs> she despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? The, the female pronoun here is directed towards the Assyrians. It's collective here. He's described dismissing their whole country as this woman that's mocking the virgin daughter of Zion. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. And the image here of the virgin daughter, I mean, this picture here is this girl walking down the street picture a young girl, virgin, unmarried, walking down the street, and there's these older women, and maybe even the men around them, hassling this girl and hurling insults at this girl and threatening this, this young girl who's walking down the street. And Isaiah says, hey, that's not a big deal, unless that young girl's dad is the one who rules the city. And now who are you insulting? You're not just insulting her. You're insulting the one who rules the city. And that's the analogy God is using here. Yeah, you mock that virgin daughter all you want, but guess what? You're really insulting the end of verse 22, the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you've mocked the Lord. And that's the word Adonai. He's not even using the, the covenant name for Yahweh right there. He's just, you've mocked the Lord. 
You have said, with many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered the furthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells, I drank foreign waters, and I dried up the sole of my foot at the streams of Egypt. That's how this Assyrian general's bragged, I guess. <laughs> I did this, I dug that well, I crushed Egypt, I crushed Le Lebanon, had the massive old trees, I knocked down their trees. That's how cool I am. You like it when somebody brags before God, don't you? Boast about how strong they are. Have you not heard, God asked the question. <laughs> Riddle me this, Sennacherib. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? You think it was your strength that dug the well? God tells Sennacherib, I let you dig the well. Who do you think gave you the shovel? You dried up the streams of, of Egypt? I let you do that. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. Theologians call this, again, the divine decree, that in the mind of God, before the creation of the world, he has the details of all the events in time planned out, decreed before the foundation. This is one of the verses that talks about that. I planned this from old. Now I bring it to pass, that you would turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Notice he's, God's telling him, yeah, I let you win battles. While their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. People put grass in their, their roof to, to cool the house, but that grass doesn't have a long life. It can't have dig, deep roots. You can't water it. It's blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down, God says, and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. I have that verse squared right there. The first half of it is pretty comforting, isn't it? God says, I know you're going out, I know you're coming in. The second half of it is a little bit discouraging. And I know when you say things against me, because you've raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, ow, and I will turn you back the way by which you came. So now Hezekiah, oh, I, Yahweh, through Isaiah, is comparing the leader of the Assyrian army, the most powerful man in the world right now, to someone who's going to be led like a horse. God says, I'll break you. I'll break you. I'll put a bit in your mouth and I'll steer you wherever I want to steer you. Giddy up. And this will be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself. This is, to, this is not to Snacker, no, this is to Hezekiah. This will be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself. And the second year, what springs of the same. And the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Now, hold everything. In Isaiah, this will be the sign for you. The virgin birth becomes the sign of the coming of Christ. This will be the sign for you. You'll have a king and before, the king will have a son. Before the sun grows up, I'll defeat your enemies. This is the promise to Hezekiah there. Here, think about what this promise is. That you will plant and it will grow and you'll eat what grows. And then you'll do that again the next year. You'll plant and it will grow and you eat what grows. And then you'll do that again a third year. You'll plant and it'll grow and you'll do what grows. I mean, literally, is there anything less miraculous in the world than that? Anything? <laughs> Here's a sign. You can drop something, it will fall. You're going to plant and it will grow and you'll eat it. And you'll do it a couple more times. That's called life. In other words, the promise to Isaiah and Hezekiah is, don't worry about this. You're going to keep living your life. You can keep eating your food. Don't worry about it. The world will go on. This is back to the providence. Problems, prayer, promise, providence. 
the word comes to Isaiah, I'll take care of Sennacherib. Just let the world keep going on its way. That's a little bit of a promise, I guess. It's hopeful in that, that lets Hezekiah know he's got at least three years left in Jerusalem. <laughs> That'll be a critical promise for him we'll see next time in chapter 20. But a surviving remnant in verse 30, the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear its fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go a remnant. Out of Mount Zion, a band for survivors, the zeal of Yahweh will do this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come up to the city, he will not shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast a siege mount up against it. He's not going to attack Jerusalem, he's not going to get up there, he won't even hit it with an arrow. By the way that he came by, the same he shall return. He shall not come into the city, declares Yahweh. He's again repeating the same promise we saw earlier. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. In other words, this is a messianic promise that God is keeping Zion, the mountain there. He's keeping the line of David alive because the Savior will come from that line. That was the promise, 2 Samuel 7, that David's descendant would always be on the throne of Jerusalem. We know that chain will get broken, of course, at the end of 2 Kings. We will see that probably in May sometime. But it's still a promise that lasts through Christ. And at night, verse 35, that night the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Chronicles lets us know that it was uh, the officers that were, most of the officers were struck down. So it was the people now wake up without leaders. They think they were attacked. It was the angel of the Lord that did this. There's just massive confusion as you could imagine. I mean, the army was probably 200,000 people. Again, this is, I told you, this is, it was big time secular news in the world back then. The strongest nation loses an insane battle in the Judean wilderness. I mean, they defeated Egypt, but they couldn't get to the Judean wilderness. Historians say that the Assyrians didn't know, they didn't credit anybody with their defeat. They didn't go back and say Jerusalem defeated them. They didn't go back and say, don't mess with Judah. They didn't say that. But they did go back without defeating Judah. And they went back having suffered an incredible defeat and they never talked about it again. They went, the people of Assyria went about their lives as if this didn't happen. But the world knew that the conquest stopped in the Judean wilderness. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home and lived in Nineveh. Have that in the background for their, your uh, Jonah encounters. That's the wicked Assyrians. That's the city that Sennacherib lived in. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped in the land of Herat. And Esarodon, his son, reigned in his place. Now, again, secular historians let you know that was 20 years after his defeat. He held on power for two more decades. So this is not an instantaneous thing here. It's just, it's presented as the next verse. But God had lots of patience, lots of patience before he brought about his judgment. Again, secular historians tell you why this is. He had passed over his, over, his older sons to become the heir to his throne. And so his older sons conspired against him and killed him, giving the younger son the throne anyway. God's promise stands even when it's not seen immediately. God answers prayer even when you don't see anything change. God hears prayer even when you see no signs of it. But if you open your eyes, you do often see signs of it, don't you? 
What a promise that God hears our cry. And I hope you see, appreciating this from the problems to prayer to promise to providence, sometimes life just goes on. It just goes on. And sometimes just the fact that it keeps going on, that's what's so miraculous. <laughs> the person apart from Christ may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow he dies. But the person who's in Christ can give God the glory while eating and while drinking and while being merry. Father, we're thankful that you are glorified in the mundane. Our problems are so severe to us, so small to you, and yet you hear. You've turned your ear towards us. And we see the glory of how you respond to our prayers. We're thankful for the kindness that you've shown us in Christ, our Savior, who came to earth and became like us. He was the descendant of David. And so we worship you through this. We know that no force aligned against you will prosper, that no one can overthrow the kingdom of God, no one can bring down the church any more than Sennacherib could bring down Jerusalem. It will stand because your word stands, and so we have confidence in that. Sometimes we pray as Hezekiah did for years before we see the response to our prayer. But Lord, that's the case. Remind us, please, just the, the mercies that are new every morning, that we get to see the time go by. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Help us marvel just in that cycle, the mercy that you show us. Plant your word in our heart, Lord. Help us come to you in times of trouble. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.